John chapter 4, let me tell you the backdrop of our story today, man, it's a powder keg of conflict. It comes straight out of today's headlines. We are dealing with issues of racial prejudice today, uh, religious persecution, gender inequality, um, all of these issues. King Solomon said this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He tells us there that there's nothing new under the sun, and that's certainly true. These issues, they transcend geography, they transcend generation, because man is infected with sin. And so we're going to see today that the answer to these issues, these issues of, of race, these racism and, 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 and gender inequality and, and religious persecution, the answer is not politics. The answer is not policy. The answer isn't really even religion. The answer is in a person. The answer is in Jesus Christ and his gospel. It is a changed heart, which is going to change these issues of racism. It's a change heart that changes this issue of religious persecution, of, of gender inequality. All of these things come from a changed heart. I want to set the stage today. Uh, that's the backdrop of our story, but let me, let me talk to you about the big idea of our story, and I'll do so by telling you a, sto uh, a brief story. Um, there was a dad, he was working in his yard. And it was a hot day, not unlike today. He was out there working in his, his, his yard, and, and he is rapidly just becoming overheated and, and uh, you know, just, just exhausted, hot, and so on. And he looks up from his lawnmower, and out comes his little three-year-old daughter, and she has in her hand uh, her little cup, and it's filled with water. And she brings it to him. And, oh, thank you, sweetheart. And he just drinks down that water. And, oh, it's so good. And she spilled water all over the side. And he wipes the water on his forehead and on his cheek. And it's, oh, sweetheart, thank you so much for bringing me this, this cold glass of water. Well, she's so proud of herself that uh, just on a regular basis now, as dad continues to work in the lawn, every, every couple of minutes out comes his daughter with, with a fresh cup of water. And oh boy, he is so grateful for this. And he finishes his work up outside and he goes inside and he notices there on the floor, there is this trail of water uh, that his little daughter has left. And dad follows the trail of water all the way into the bathroom and finds that she has been filling her cup out of the toilet in the bathroom. That's a disgusting story. Well, that leads us into the big idea of our text today, and it's a question, and here it is. What well are you drinking from? Very important idea. What well are you drinking from? John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made, <coughs> excuse me, that Jesus uh, made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again to Galilee. And so Jesus, having been there in Judea, baptizing as we looked at last week, um, noticing that he's getting a lot of attention and, and a lot of focus. And understand Jesus is operating on a divine timeline here. And, and so uh, this attention and focus 
uh, is unwelcomed. It is not going to work according to Jesus's divine timeline. And so he picks up on that. And so he leaves the region. He departs now uh, to Galilee. But verse four says he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. That word needed, uh, if you're taking notes, you could circle it nearby. You could write a necessity born of circumstance. That's literally what that word means. It's a necessity that he go through Samaria born of a circumstance. And the circumstance we're going to find out is this, that he's going there to save not just one lost soul, which is the focus of our text, but we will see uh, this week and we'll see it more in earnest next week that he is going to save a multitude of lost souls. And so it's critical that he needed to go through Samaria. Verse five, so he came to the city, to a city of Samaria, which is called uh, Sukkar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That would have been about high noon, the hottest part of the day. Jesus is weary, needs a break. Uh, And a woman of Samaria, verse 7, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then, verse 9, the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Geographically, this region of Sukkar in Samaria, um, it has a rich biblical history. Uh, This is ancient Shechem, and if you go through your Bible, you see a lot of stories that are connected with Shechem. For instance, this is the place that God renewed his covenant uh, with Abram, giving him the land. As well, Shechem was a place where Jacob bought land and built an altar to worship the Lord. It's also the place where Joshua renewed the covenant of Israel with God and where he famously declared, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But at this time, the time of our story, uh, this area had become a despised region. Here's why. When the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom Uh, of Judah, they took the people captive, and they then exiled them to Babylon. But there was a contingent of people that they left behind, and the people that they left behind were the low class, the lowest class members of society. And they did not want uh, this low class group of people uh, to come to Babylon, so they left them there. And what happened was these people, they would ultimately become the Samaritans. They intermarried with Gentiles, and they became a distinctly separate ethnic group. And as well, they mixed their religion with the Gentiles. And so what they did is they took the law of Moses, um, and then they added various pagan superstitions to uh, their religion, and they had just sort of this hodgepodge of things, just certain select elements of the law of Moses, and then these other pagan uh, religious traditions, and that became uh, their religion. Um, William Barclay, in his commentary, he said that the Samaritans took only as much scripture as they liked, and they paid no attention 
to the rest. This is a sad commentary on a lot of Christians today that wink and cherry pick. They'll wink at the scripture they don't like, and then they'll cherry pick the scriptures that they do like. They take only as much scripture as they like. They pay no attention to the rest. Well, this is what the Samaritans did, and they had their their distinctly own, unique, uh, just uh, hodgepodge uh, train wreck of, of a religious system. And so this gives us the background of our conflict, specifically religious and ethnic prejudice. Um, because the Jews regarded Samaritans as half-breeds, uh, and they, their faith was a mongrel faith as far as they were concerned. And so although geographically the road uh, through Samaria was, was the shortest route from Jerusalem to Galilee, most Jews avoided this because they didn't want to have any dealings with, with the Samaritans. So they would take the long road just so they didn't have to go through uh, Samaria. Now, when somebody hates you with this much hatred, what's the natural human response? You hate them back. And this was the dynamic that was in place in this time. You had the Jews who hated the Samaritans with a passion, and you had the Samaritans really who hated the Jews with a passion. They hated one another. And uh, making matters worse, when the Samaritans subsequently built their own temple on uh, Mount Gerizim uh, to worship, you know, in their way, the Jews, they burned it down. And so they made, if it were possible to make relations worse, that did the trick. So they, there was this intense hatred. And not only in our story do we have religious prejudice going on uh, here as the background and racial prejudice going on here in the, in the background and the setting of the story, but we're also dealing with gender inequality. Notice in verse 9, this girl asks the Lord, how is it that you're asking me, a woman, for a drink? Understand, in this day, women were treated more as property than they were as people. Uh, they couldn't give testimony in court. Uh, they couldn't hold public office. Um, in fact, it was considered improper for a rabbi to even speak with a woman in public. He couldn't speak to his wife, to his daughters. Uh, this was sort of the dynamic that's going on here. And this gal, man, she's got the deck stepped against her because on, in, on top of all of that, religious persecution, racial persecution, gender inequality, this gal she's got a bad reputation. I had to laugh. I was looking through Warren Wiersbe's commentary as I was studying through this, and he does sort of a play on words where uh, he calls this section of Scripture the bad Samaritan. Jesus, you'll recall, told a parable about a good Samaritan, right? Well, he calls this, this section the bad Samaritan because of this Samaritan woman. As we're going to see, this woman, she got around, man. She, she had multiple husbands. Uh, she's shacking up with a guy. And, and so she is a person who really has the deck, the deck stacked against her in so many ways. Religious persecution, racial persecution, uh, she, she, she's, dealing, she's a woman, uh, and so she's got that going for her, and she's got this sordid reputation. And so she is hated on all fronts. And we get a clue um, that <clears throat> she, was, she was shunned even by her own people in verse 6, because it tells us there that Jesus came to the well at the sixth hour, uh, at the, the height of the, the heat 
of the day. Now, the, the practice in this time was that the, the ladies, when they, they, they were the ones that went and got the water, and when they would go and get the water, they, they, would, they would go in groups. Ladies, you go everywhere in groups, right? Uh, and, and so they would all go together in groups, and they would go in the morning when it was, when it was you know, cooler, and they didn't have to deal with, uh, with the blazing sun. But here, this girl comes, she comes alone, and she comes all by herself. Brenda and I were discussing this, and uh, Brenda made the observation, yes, yeah, she came alone because the other women are afraid that she's going to steal their man, you know? So she's got this bad reputation. Now, granted, this gal made an ocean of bad choices, and we're going to see that as we go through the text, and, and sort of she's living through consequences of sin. But <clears throat> when you consider her plight, you can't help but feel sorry for her. I mean, she's, she's, what a sad and hopeless way to live. You're isolated, you're alone, you're vilified, you're hated, you're in a minority class, uh, all of these things that are, that are against this gal. And, you know, just for pause and reflection, I mean, we, we see her condition, but maybe, you know, you're going through a situation where you're isolated, where you're alone, where, where you're feeling like everything's against you. And, man, I, I just want you to see the heart of our Lord and the hope that we have in that, because in verse 4, it says he needed to go through Samaria. See, Jesus, Jesus knew this woman was there. Jesus knew what this woman was going through. Jesus knows what you're going through. And his, 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 uh, his motivation and, 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 and the, the, the urgency in his heart, hey, I need to go there, right? And, and just know that if you're in that state, this is the heart of the Lord towards you. Hey, I need to go to Susie. I need to go to Kathy. I need to go to Bill. I need to go to Ted. He, 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 this is, this is the, the, this is how our Lord ticks, right? And so we read in verse 10, it says, Jesus answers this gal, you know, he says, hey, give me a drink. And she's like, what are you new? Like, you know, Samaritans hate the Jews. Jews hate the Samaritans. I'm a woman. Like, you know, how are you? you're asking me for this. And Jesus answered and he said to her, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I want you to make an observation here. Jesus cites three realities that this woman is currently blind to. She's blind to the promise of God, Jesus will say. She's blind to the presence of God. And thirdly, she's blind to the provision of God. Check it out, verse 10. She's blind to the promise of God. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God. Here's the idea. The idea is that Jesus saves. The Messiah saves. Isaiah the prophet said, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. So she's, she's blind to the promise of God. She's blind to the presence of God. Jesus says, if you knew who it is who says this to you. Here's the idea. Jesus is God 
with us, right? Matthew's gospel tells us that. It declares that uh, to us, speaking from the book of Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This gal is, is blind to the fact that God is with her. He's right there with her. And so often we can be blind to the fact when we're feeling isolated, when we're feeling alone, we can be blind to the fact God's right there. He's with you. And you can just cry out to him. And this is the third thing that she's blind to. She's blind to the provision of God. Jesus says, if you knew, you would have asked and he would have given. Right? Here's the idea. The idea is that Jesus forgives. The idea is that Jesus cleanses, that he rescues us. And all we need to do is ask. That's all that we need to do. Isaiah the prophet said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Paul the apostle said this in Romans chapter 10. He said, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Jesus, you know, says, listen, you're blind to these things. You're blind to the promise of God, blind to the presence of God, blind to the provision of God. And I want you to notice what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, hey, if you knew the Constitution and if you align yourself with the Samaritan Lives Matter movement or, you know, if you call your senator and your governor and you demand that they clean up this mess or, you know, that, that none of that is the answer to the issues that we're facing. Listen, the answer is a changed heart. The answer is Jesus Christ. He said, God's giving you a gift. And that gift is me. And I'm here. And all you need to do is ask. I'll forgive you your sins. I'll make you a new creation. I'll give you a hope and a future. I will change your heart and I'll heal your land. This is the idea. This is the attitude that Jesus is the answer, a changed heart through the person and work of Christ. And so verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? What's going on here? Jesus has just talked to this gal, and he's talking about spiritual things, but she's not getting the memo, right? She's thinking in terms of the physical. And, and Paul said to the Corinthians that this is what the natural man does. He says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned right? In other words, the things of God, they're not naturally things that we get or understand or discern. They're, they, they have to be spiritually discerned, right? And right now, this woman, she's not hearing the spiritual reality of Jesus's words. She's thinking of literal water. And so Jesus now, he uses thirst as a picture of the spiritual need and longing that everyone has. Look at verse 13. Jesus answered and he said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, and she said to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have, the dude you're shacking up with now, he's not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. See, Jesus knows that this woman had to come to this well daily to satisfy her natural thirst. And not only that, but humanly speaking, she has many natural thirsts. In her case, one of her deepest thirsts, as we read here in the text, she has this deep thirst and longing for love and for companionship. But listen, we all have thirsts. When we read about this woman and how she ticks and operates, we have to acknowledge that all of us have thirsts. We have a thirst for love, for security, for happiness, uh, for significance, a thirst for respect, uh, a, a thirst for cleansing and, and, and uh, cleansing and of our guilt, right? We all have these thirsts. I like what David Guzik said. He said, people are thirsty for many things. They want They long, they search, they reach, but only what Jesus gives satisfies to the deepest level of man's soul and spirit. And he goes on and says it's common for people to try and satisfy their God-created inner thirst through many things or through anything except for what Jesus gives. That's key right here. Understand, this woman has been doing that her entire life, right? She's been looking to satisfy satisfy fleshly things for a deeper spiritual thirst. And let me hit the pause button right there and just ask you the question, maybe that's you too. Maybe that's you too. Well, you have these deep thirsts, and really they're spiritual thirsts, but perhaps like this woman, you've been looking to fleshly things to quench the thirst that you have. Looking to a relationship, or looking to a career, or looking to your children, or or looking to, hey, even good deeds. Man, I have a thirst to be made right with God. I'm gonna do good things, and maybe that'll satisfy this thirst to, to, you know, because I feel so guilty, but if I do some good things, maybe I won't feel so guilty kind of thing. But listen, whenever you elevate a good thing, and some of those are good things, kids are good things, having a, 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 a prosperous career is a good thing and, and all. But when you elevate a good thing to a God thing to quench your thirst, that's when it becomes an idol. Mark Driscoll described idols this way. He said that, you know, everybody sort of starts with a self-defined hell. And it's like, man, you know, for instance, I've got a poor hell, right? If I if I don't if I'm not gainfully employed, have a good career, and know, you know, have some money in the bank and have some some financial security, man, that's just hell for me, right? A poor hell, or or people have a fat hell, or they've got a guilty hell. In this woman's case, she's got a lonely hell, right? And so, man, you don't want to go to that hell. And so, what what is it, what is an idol? An idol is when you find a functional savior, right? That's going to save you from whatever it is that is your self-defined hell. 
And so if you have a poor hell, then your functional savior is your job and your career, right? And you're going to sacrifice that and you're going to pour everything into that. Or, or if, you know, being fat and out of shape is just hell for you, then your functional savior becomes the gym. And so now everything in your life you revolves around your diet and exercise and, and all of that. Again, those are good things, but when, when those become God things, they become idols, right? Uh, you know, you've got, maybe you're dealing with a guilty hell. Man, I, I, I just know that I need to made, be made right with God. And, and so what do you do? You, you go, oh, I'm going to earn my way by doing good works, right? That becomes your functional savior, what you do. For this woman, her functional savior was a man, right? Because what is her hell? Her hell is being lonely. Her hell is being alone. And we understand, I mean, she's marginalized in every way, Man, she just wants somebody to love her, right? And so a man has become her functional savior. Now, that has become the well that she's going to to quench her thirst. The problem is it never quenches your thirst. Whenever you have any sort of savior that is not the savior, Jesus Christ, you will thirst again. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus is saying to this woman, in effect, listen, dear sister, you are drinking from the wrong well. That's what he is saying to her. And so backing up to verse 15, the woman says to Jesus, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw, right? And um, she still doesn't get it, right? She's still thinking in, in the, the natural and so what does Jesus do now? What he does is he shows her the water trail. You remember my story in the beginning where dad came in and he saw a water trail and it led him to the well that he'd been drinking from. And so what Jesus does now is he shows this woman her water trail to reveal the well that she's been drinking from, this water trail to the toilet, so to speak. And so verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answers, she says to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Notice this gal's response here. She, she, she says, her response is, I have no husband. Now up until this, everything that Jesus has said, she's just chatty Kathy. She's just, she can't, you know, she's, she's running on, talking about all kinds of stuff. Jesus says, go call your husband. And all of a sudden it's like, I have no husband, right? And she, you can almost hear her just sort of muttering it under her breath. Here now what we see is a hint of conviction in this gal's life. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, Christ has different doors for entering into different people's souls. Into some, he enters by the understanding, into many, by the affections. To some, he comes by way of fear, and to another, by that of hope. But to this woman, he came by way of her conscience, right? Now, at this point, this gal is starting to get the idea that she has a spiritual need to satisfy her, her thirst. But like so many people, I want you to notice her response. She responds with religion. Look at verses 19 and 20. The woman says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Do you see the question there? She's basically saying, okay, I'm starting to get, I got a spiritual problem, so, so where's the right place that I should go to worship? What's the right religion that I should be following, right? She's on the right track, but she's still in the wrong mode. She's in the mode where she's thinking, where can I go? right? And, and what can I do to satisfy this inner thirst? You know, if I, if I can just find the right religion, if I can just find the right church, if I can just find the right teacher, if I can just find the right books, those, those are what are, are going to fix me. And Jesus responds here in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we worship. Uh, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is talking about uh, the word of God and the Messiah coming through the Jews. This is the idea. He says, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. But the hour, he says, is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit, it means that you're concerned with spiritual realities. You're not concerned with the, the trappings of religion. Do I worship in a particular place? Uh, you know, what are your outward religious show of sacrifices or of cleansings or of rituals, right? It's not about that. And so you're worshiping in spirit. It means you're concerned about spiritual realities. To worship in truth means that all of that is based according to God's word. Right? It's both in. I'm interested in spiritual realities, but I'm going to set my compass by the compass of the word of God. This is what, what the, the Lord is saying here. Verse 25, we continue. The woman says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman and yet no one said, why do you, uh, what do you seek or, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men there in the city, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Christ? This is one of the few times in the Gospel of John as we read through these last verses, verse 25 through 29, where Jesus reveals his identity so plainly and so clearly. He says, I who speak to you am he. You start to see this gal, the, 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 the door starts to open, the light begins to dawn. She starts off with a religious response and, and you know, what religion should I be seeking? And Jesus starts telling her, no, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And then she starts to dial in and go, okay, who's the Messiah? And Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, it's me. He does this beautiful work of reaching out to this very lost woman and it's just that. He does this for a lost woman. 
a woman despised on every level imaginable, socially, religiously, racially. I, I would imagine she even hated herself. She was just such a miserable person. And the Apostle Paul, he said this. He said, this is a trustworthy saying, and everybody should accept it, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of all. And I think this gal would have said, no, I'm the worst of all, right? But Jesus, he's no respecter of persons, right? He just, he loves people and wants to see them come to the knowledge of the truth. That you would escape the snares of the enemy who's taken you captive to do his will. The heart of God is to seek and to save the lost. That's what he came to do. This is the point where this woman's eyes are open. She sees the Messiah and she runs out. She's telling everybody. Again, verses 27 through 29, we read, at this point, his disciples came. They marveled, you know. No, nobody says, you know, what do you seek? or Why are you talking with her? They, they recognize, hey, this might be against all social norms, but he's God and he knows what he's doing. And the woman, verse 28, left her water pot. She went her way into the city and she's now, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I think I found the Christ. That's the attitude. That's the idea. I like what Leon Morris said in his commentary. He said, the Samaritan woman was so impressed by the love of Jesus, even as he confronted her sin. Go get your husband. Oh, I have no husband. You're right. You've been married five times. You're shacking up with another guy right now. He's not your husband. He confronted her in her sin, but she was so impressed by his love for her. What did she do? He says, she forgot what she would rather everyone else forget. All the things that I ever did, right? She, she, she's an outcast. Her sins are thrown in her face all the time. She's going to get water alone. Nobody will talk to her. Everybody is, is against her. And she would just rather nobody bring up this fact that, uh, you know, all these things that I've ever done, she hears it all the time. This tape running in her head, all of the things. The enemy, who's the accuser of the brethren, just right, and, and he's an accuser, and, and he desires to steal, to kill and destroy, and he lies to us, and he says lies to you. God hates you. You're no good. You'll never be any good. People reinforce that. Some of you had fathers that you grew up with. They say, hey, you're a bum. You're always going to be a bum. And you live your entire life trying to please a man you can never please. Some of you live your lives trying to please a man who's long since gone. He's died years ago, but yet you live seeking his affirmation and his pleasure, and it's never going to come. And this gal, she's in this place where now it doesn't matter, right? What happens when you come to Jesus? He cleanses you. And what was once a source of shame now becomes a source of testimony. It's something you shout from the rooftops. I was a meth addict. I was a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. I was, you know, promiscuous. Whatever it is was your history. You don't celebrate those things. What you celebrate is what God delivered you from. And this is what's going on. She's saying, come see a man. He told me all that I ever did. But he offers me cleansing. He offers me forgiveness. And guys, God offers you cleansing. He offers you forgiveness. When you come to him, he cleanses you. And now what was the source of shame becomes a testimony. 
Paul, he said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in an unbelief. Speaking to the Ephesians, he says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Gives us a picture of ourselves there right up front, right? You were dead. You know, you take that group photo. Who do you look for first? You're looking for you, right? And Paul says, let me take a group photo and show you you. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But he goes on, right? You were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works uh, in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and we were all by nature children of wrath, just as the others, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Hear this, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And in the ages to come, for the believer, what this looks like is that when in the age to come, hey, I was a sinner. I was going to hell. And this was the testimony of my life. But now what does God do? He shows the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. And I want to shout it from the rooftops and say that Jesus is Lord and he changed me and he can change you. And Paul concludes in verse 8 in Ephesians chapter 2 by saying, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Think about that, the gift of God. What did this woman have to do to receive that gift and to quench this thirst once and for all? She just had to drink. She had to drink of the water that Jesus offered. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, what does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. Come to the well and drink. Well, there's a lot more in this story, and we're going to pick it up next week. But I want to focus here, you know, we're going to look at the, the woman's witness and, and, and all of that and all of this outworking. But I want to focus here as we close, looking again at verse 28, right there, would you see that the woman left her water pot and she made her way into the city? Why did she leave her water pot? Well, we're going to see she's going to come back, right? She'll, she'll be back for it. She's going to bring others with her. That'll be the source of our, our study next week. She left it perhaps for Jesus to use and his disciples to use. But in keeping with the big idea of our text, what's the big, of our, big idea of our text? It's what well are you drinking from? What well are you drinking from? So why did she leave her water pot? It's because she drank of the living water that Jesus promised. Jesus shouted out in John chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Have you drank from the water that Jesus gives? today? Have you done that? What well are you drinking from?
That's the first of our three questions here as we close. Number one, what well are you drinking from? Question number two, I'd have you take a walk with it this week. What lessons can we learn from John chapter four about racism? And the third question, just for you to take a walk with this week, what does John chapter four teach us about sharing our faith? That's a primer for our message next week.